You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York. A community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. And now if you would stand for the gospel reading, this is from Mark 1, 14 through 20. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boats mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. The word of the Lord. Thank you so much, Jacqueline, for that and for everything you do for the church. You all may be seated this morning. Um, Salem, I'm going to ask you know that you receive this. I'm, I'm going to get immediately to the point, and I want you to receive this in an atmosphere of prayer. And so if you would, uh, for worship team in the room, um, everybody watching from home, would you just take a, a minute or two here and just pray with me for a moment? Just open yourself up to God. And the, the way that we are going to hear this message is not by way of pens and notebooks, Set that aside for, for one Sunday. You, you can watch this again another time and take all the notes you want. I want everybody, I feel the Spirit wants everybody to experience this sermon the way you just experienced the worship service. We don't, we don't take notes during the worship service. And we do take notes during a sermon. Sometimes something happens in a worship service and we should take notes. And sometimes... A sermon is such that we shouldn't take notes. And so I feel that this is a don't take notes sermon. This is an experience sermon. I want you to encounter Jesus in one of the ways that he wants to be encountered, and that is through the spoken word given by a pastor on a Sunday morning. Of, uh, Bishop Varanash once said, of all foolish mediums, God has chosen the art of preaching that men might be saved. And so there's a point where in great humility and in a lot of absurdity and curiosity, Jesus has chosen to be experienced through bread and, and juice, through song and lyric and instrument, through the signs of peace during the meet and greet, through gathering on a Sunday, and yes, through the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's gifts, and also through the sermon. And I have a feeling that there are certain encounters with Jesus where taking notes is just not what we would do. It's just hearing it. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray right now for every person that is truly listening to this Sunday message. I pray that as I attempt to speak plainly and clearly, that you would minister this sermon in tongues, 
into the language of every person that needs to hear it the way they need to hear it this morning. So I pray, Heavenly Father, that as I preach in the language that I speak, through the personality that you've given me, I pray that between my lips and everyone's ears, your spirit would Pentecost on that sound and preach it in tongues in the way that everyone needs to hear it for their situation, for their moment, where they are, how they are, when they are right now. I ask that we would not listen to this with defensiveness or skepticism, but that we would hear the sound of Christ and him crucified. I pray that this message would sound like the cross, that it would echo out one of the many different ways the cross sounds. I pray that it would explode in situations where revelation is needed today. I pray that it would answer questions that we know we're asking and that we're not sure that we're even asking. I pray that this sermon would heal things that we know are out of joint and things that we are totally unaware are out of joint. I pray for people who may stumble upon this live stream that are not walking with you that they would immediately realize, like those going the wrong, wrong way on the road to Emmaus, that you always were walking with them. And that they've never been without you. Do something with this mess of a sermon, Father God, that only you can do. Here's a few loaves and some fish. I pray that you multiply this in a way that would feed not only your church, but everyone listening. And I pray that it wouldn't just feed us, that it would feed us in a way that equips us to feed others. In your name we pray. Amen. We're in the season of Epiphany, and in the season of Epiphany, we celebrate the fact that God reveals himself to us in many, many different ways. Without the revelation of God, we would be stuck only knowing what we know. And I think if you're willing to be honest, what we know is not enough to get through the crumbs and bubbles of life, let alone the major issues that life seems to always surprise us with. So we need something more than what we know. Adam and Eve were tempted to eat from the tree of the knowledge. And we still bow at the altar of this tree. The more we know, the more we can control. The more certain we are, the more we can control. The more we have an answer, the more competent we are. And this is just simply not true. This is never the way God intended it to be. God always intended for us to be students who are never surprised that we don't know and always surprised that God still reveals himself to us. So Jesus just merely walks by the sea and sees a few guys fishing and calls them to follow him. And I promise you, there's nothing merely about this. There are three revelations that I want us to see in this text. And I'm praying as I'm preaching 
that this hits people in your soul. And I'm going to do everything I can to be underwhelming, not dramatic, which I will fail at. But I'm going to do everything I can to just say plainly what the Spirit is saying and trust that you will hear this in a tongue that you need to hear it in. I want you to leave today with confidence, courage, and clarity. And because they all started with the letter C, you probably want to write them down. Don't. I didn't know I was going to tell you not to write it down when I did that. That was way too cool and way too administrative. I'm sorry. I apologize. The Spirit is messing me up as we speak. But listen back to it, and then you could write down courage, confidence, courage, and clarity. Revelation 1. Qualification is not a court case, but a calling. Qualification is not a court case, but a calling. Your qualification to not just follow Jesus, but minister with him, is not a court case. It is a calling. You don't wake up every day and have to start all over in court again to see if you can win the argument to be qualified today. And sadly, I feel that many of us at various times and in various ways, whether it's with explicitly Christian ministry or our parenting or how we are friends or employees at our jobs, whatever it is, some very secular things, some very spiritual things, we wake up every day saying, I'm in court again, like a terrible version of Groundhog's Day. We wake up, and we're in court again, and we have to get it right again today. Like Adam Sandler in 50 First Dates with Drew Barrymore. Am I right? That was close. Every day he had to try to get Drew Barrymore to fall in love with him again. How ex- that is a perfect example, Frank. Thank you for looking at me. That is a perfect example of this. We were right there. Every day Adam Sandler had to wake up and get Drew Barrymore to fall in love with him again because she had some kind of weird amnesia, and she forgot every day. Many of us wake up like we're in the movie with 50, of Fifty First States with God. And we're only as good as what we've done today, and our yesterday doesn't count anymore. We've got to do it right again today. We've got to get it right again today. Your qualification is not a court case. It is a calling Jesus doesn't walk by the sea and say, let me see your resume. He's speaking to grown men who have lived a life and they've made mistakes and they're going to keep making mistakes and they're going to make a mess out of this calling and they're going to deny him, betray him, doubt him, question him, be cynical with him, be cynical with others, treat children poorly. You read the gospel. These disciples are about to do all of those things. He calls them. Why is that important? Because this Jesus walking by the sea that he created 
walking by boats made out of wood that he created, looking at human flesh that he created. He is the voice that hovers over the waters in Genesis 1. And when he says something, it is because he said it. So when he says, follow me, you are qualified to follow him because the voice that said, let there be light, called you. What does he say? Follow me, and then I will make you become fishers of men. Follow me as you are. And in the process of time, I'm going to make you become something. Way back in the day, the church operated under the theory of ministry is what you do. And we quickly realized that's terrible. Because what I do, my wife is in the room. What I do is not always ministry. It's ministering to something, but not always to Jesus. Fair? To put it lightly. Then we, we transitioned from that and said, ministry it's not what you do, it's who you are. Again, Jeff, who I am is not always ministry, as per my wife being in the room. She knows this. Ministry is not what you do, Salem. Ministry is not who you are, Salem. Ministry is who you're becoming. Ministry is in the becoming. It's not in what you do, and it's not in who you are. Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men, meaning I'm going to take every fall down you have. I'm going to take every misstep, every sin, every season you were off, every season you were on. I'm taking all of it, and I am making something of you with all of it. This is the Jesus who fed 10,000 people and then wouldn't let them leave scraps on the ground because even the things of God that we spit out and deny in sinful ways, he says, don't even waste that. Collect it and hold it because I don't waste anything. I don't waste one moment of your life, one sin you've committed, one righteous act that you've done, a virtue that you have, or an immoral character flaw that you may have. I'm using all of it. There will be no scraps left. I will take everything that is you, and I will use it to make you something with me. That is what he's saying. Your calling is not a court case. There are new mercies every morning. So if it is a court case, before you open your eyes, the judge hits the gavel and says, innocent, every single morning. Let's receive that. And let's love each other with that kind of love. Do not put the people in your life in a court case every morning. No one should have to prove themselves to us. We should just love them with reckless, hear me, love them with reckless, and everyone's going to hate this word, love them with reckless, naive love. Be naive. 
well, pastor, that could get me hurt. It will get you hurt. The love of Jesus will get you taken advantage of. It will get you hurt. You'll be so good to your kids, and they won't be good back. I know this from experience because I was the kid who still doesn't probably give it back the way that I should. Your heart will get stepped on. Welcome to Good Friday. Be naive. Be disappointed and then be naive again. Prodigal son's father must have been the most naive man in all of Scripture because after years of his son not being home, saw him crest the horizon, which probably means in my world, somewhere in the morning, somewhere in the afternoon, and somewhere in the evening, this father said, maybe today is the day. He was so naive. I think Jesus is perfectly naive, still hoping that his love will win out. He weeps at Lazarus' tomb, even though he knows Lazarus is going to be raised. Just because death sucks, even though he knows he's going to end it. Be naive. Your qualification is not a court case. It's a calling. He didn't ask for resumes. He said, follow me. And he's still saying it. If you've been a Christian for a long time, you know your sin. If you've just become a Christian, sometimes you may feel silly. Last thing I want to say on this point is this. To new Christians, to people who maybe have believed in God and you're just entering into the formality called the church. None of the gifts of the Spirit and none of the fruit of the Spirit has anything to do with reading the Bible well. It has to do with virtue and who you are. You will learn to read the Bible well. Is it important? Let me settle down all the people who have been Christians for a long time. Sit back down. It is extremely important. It's one of the most important things ever. So, usferba, calm down. But knowledge is not a prerequisite to be anointed. I want us to be like Peter where somebody says, I can tell by the way he speaks, he's been with the man. In the book of Acts, they say, how are these uneducated men able to speak the things of God? Learn, yes. Pursue it, yes. Let the Bible read you more than you trying to understand it. Let it make sense of you, yes. But please understand, he's calling you today and what you don't know is going to be as potent for you as what you do know. And what you learn is going to be as, as potent for you as what you are yet to learn. The space of not knowing is as filled with God as the space of knowing is. You're not disqualified. You're not in court. Love with a supernatural love that comes from another world. People should see your love and should say, where are you from? He's like, the love, the love I have is, uh, it's, uh, I'm not from town. I'm from out of town. I'm from a different place. This love is not coming from the kind of love you understand. It's coming from somebody who walked by the seashore of my life and saw me miserable in a boat and called me anyway. 
Next revelation. Our challenge is in the change. Our challenge is in the change. These men were used to something. They knew what worked for them. They had a rhythm. They knew what worked. This is what we do. We're fishermen. Now, unfortunately, this particular text has been used for people who are called out of secular employment into whatever you want to call this, divine appointment or something. I want to tell you right now, this has nothing to do with that at all zero, because then it would only be for a few people. When this text opens, it says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Here's what I want to say. Do not think of this as God wants to take me from this job out of it. Think of it like this. The gospel is still walking down the seashore every day of your life, and the gospel is still calling to you every day of your life, and at some point, the gospel's going to ask you to do something or live in a season or participate in things in a way that you've never done before, and you have to walk away from maybe the most powerful pull on our lives, which is the things that used to work. It worked once. I got used to church like this. I got used to ministry like this. I got used to asking for salvations this way. I got used to these kinds of altar calls. I got used to this rhythm. I got used to this way of reading my Bible. I got used to this theology. I got used to ministering this way. Fine, but here's the thing. As Christians, we should never be in the groove. We shouldn't be groovy, Jeff. Sad joke, terrible joke kind of funny because I said it was a terrible joke. See what I did? We should not be stuck on a track where we just can't get out of this groove. It worked the day it worked because that's when God wanted it to work. And I have talked to way too many Christians who want to go back to things that worked. But life today is not what life was yesterday. And today needs a new way of doing things. And today needs creative people. Like my wife said when she came up here and she pastorally stated, give us creativity. Guess what you don't need if you're going to do things the way they've always been done? You don't need to be creative. All you would have needed is to have been creative once. Get out of the boat of what you're used to. Break away from what used to work. Jesus stood in front of a meal that for the longest time from the exodus with Moses never changed. He stood in front of a meal that was done meticulously the same way all the time. He had this meal with the disciples at least one or two times prior to this moment we call the Last Supper. He followed the liturgy, I know, the liturgy of the Passover. And one day, he stands behind this meal 
And instead of saying, on the night when God released us from Egypt, our forefathers ate this meal in haste. They put the blood of the lamb on the lintel of the door using a hyssop branch. They gathered all of their belongings and their children. They ate the garlic and the food and the bread that was unleavened. And they left in haste. Instead of telling that story, Jesus stands behind that meal and the Spirit says, we're changing it. And he stands behind that meal and says, this has nothing to do with Moses anymore. This is my body now, which is broken for you. The hands of the Romans are the hyssop branch, and my blood is going to be put on the door of your life. Jesus preaches messages himself. God is going to separate the sheep from the goats. Sheep are going to go over here, and the goats are going to go over here. In keeping with our text today, Jesus himself preaches a parable and says, the kingdom of heaven is like a fisher casting a net into the sea, and he gathered some good fish and some rotten fish, and the good fish he put out his right hand, and the rotten fish he threw away. Jesus has stories of, on this mountain, you're blessed, but on this mountain, you're cursed. All of a sudden, having lived through a religion that says if you're good, you're in, and if you're bad, you're out. All of a sudden, the Holy Spirit says to Jesus, it's time to change. You go be the goat now. What? You go be the bad fish that was thrown away. You go take the place of the people who were cast into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. If Jesus was stuck on what worked, he doesn't go to the cross. He doesn't get crucified outside the city gates. He doesn't himself become the scapegoat. He doesn't go to the place where the manslayer is cast to. He just does the rabbi thing really, really well, but doesn't do the Messiah thing at all. Our challenge, we will never lose our calling because of our behavior, but we will not see our calling if we refuse to change. I mean, I've heard, this is a joke, kind of funny, I've heard people say, can we go back to singing the old songs that we used to sing? I don't like these new songs. Can we go back and sing Glory to Glory by Fred Hammond? Okay, guess what? When that, and correct me if I'm wrong here, I got musicians over here. Wasn't that a new song when it first came out? Well, let's go back to the hymns, these old songs. Yeah, but when they were written, they weren't old, they were brand new. If you want the new songs to be old songs, sing them a lot. <laughs> Just saying. We can't refuse to change. We have to walk away from what worked. 
Because today is not yesterday, and tomorrow's not going to be today. And God is so engulfed and enmeshed and incarnated into the present that we have to be willing to say and do what needs to be said and done today. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5. Finally, and maybe most importantly, the third revelation, our calling is both ministry and mending. Ministry and mending. In this text, nothing written in the Bible, it literally says at the end of the Gospel of John that if everything Jesus said and did was written, all the books in all the world and all the library space in all the world wouldn't be able to hold what we would write. That's what it says in John. At the end of John, it literally says, all the books in the world wouldn't be able to hold the things that were written. That means that what is written needs to be obsessed over because it's that important. So it doesn't say that he just went by the sea and saw fishermen and said, follow me. It says one group was casting their net into the sea, and he said, follow me. The other group was in their boat mending the net, and he said, follow me. So hear this. For the longest time, for, for, for very close to the full history of the church, the church has always seen the image of a boat, and many cathedral Orthodox churches are actually shaped inside to represent a boat. The boat was always seen to be the church, and the sea was always seen to be sin and death. So in Genesis 1, the Holy Spirit hovers over the face of the waters. There's sin and death down there, and the Holy Spirit hovers over the face of the waters and reaches into the sin and death and creates life. When Jesus, when, when the priests in Joshua go into the Jordan, they take the Ark of the Covenant and they walk into the Jordan River and it literally says in Joshua that when the Ark went into the Jordan River, the rivers of the Jordan were rolled back to a city ironically called Adam. When the ark and the promise of God walks into the sin of our life, the sin gets rolled back to Adam. (laughs) To Adam. When the Israelites were stuck between the Egyptian army and what they thought was sin and death, or the analogy of it, the Red Sea, God says, the way through your sin and death is going to be made for you, and the sea is parted, much like Jesus' flesh, and the, and the Israelites walked through on dry ground. The dry ground was one of the first representations of Jesus in the Bible. Jesus is the space that we can walk through our own sin and death. Jesus is baptized In the Jordan River, in Joshua, the Ark of the Covenant stood in the Jordan River. In the Gospel, the Ark of the Covenant himself goes into the Jordan River. 
and he's baptized down into the people who drowned in the flood, down to find the Egyptian army that was oppressing Israel, down to find Adam and Eve, he goes, and he descended to the dead on Holy Saturday, and he preached the gospel down there, and he led captivity captive down there. He goes down into the depths. And so the church has always had this analogy that the church is like the boat and the watery sea is like the carnal secular world that we live in. And what is our calling to be fishers of men? Well, what does that mean? That means that we're supposed to stay in a boat but reach into the sin and the death and bring people out. Watch this. There are two stories in the Bible that represent how this is done wrong. The first one is Noah in the ark. I love you all, just so you know. But if the ark represents the church, Noah's ark is a terrible depiction of the church, and Noah's Ark represents the kind of church we used to be. A closed-off system that doesn't let anybody in or anybody out and is content to live in its own safety even though the world around you is banging on the walls wanting to get in and they're dying. It's called moralism. It's called legalism. It's called fundamentalism. At least I'm safe. I know where I'm going. I literally had somebody respond to me on Facebook recently and said, when Jesus comes back, there's going to be hell to pay for everybody else, but I'm just glad that I'm going to sit in the marriage supper of the Lamb. And what did I do? I shook the dust off my feet and decided not to respond to that post because I loved the person and didn't want to hurt their feelings terribly. That mentality of at least I'll be good, Noah never says to anybody in the story, you, you might want to come into the ark. He never invites anybody in there. He never says, trust me. He just says, we'll be good, and shuts the door. We don't want the church to be like Noah's ark. But then, I'm going to ruin another story for you now. But then, in the New Testament, there's the opposite depiction of somebody who got it equally as wrong. His name's Peter. And Peter thought, I am, no, no, what I'm going to do, I'm going to get out of the boat and I'm going to walk on the water. So in the Noah story, we're all in the boat and the boat is locked and no one else can come in but us, but at least we're saved. But then in the Peter story, Peter says, I don't want to have anything to do with the boat. I want, to, I want to walk on sin and death my way. And Jesus lets him sink so that Peter knows this is not what you're supposed to do. You're not supposed to get out of the boat and walk on the water. I'm the one who does that. You're supposed to be in the boat. Pastor, I don't agree. Pause. Fine. I don't care. Here's the thing. When at the end of Acts, when Paul is being shipwrecked and his boat is splintering apart, does anybody ever hear Paul say, it doesn't matter if this boat sinks, we can walk on water? Is there another story of somebody trying to walk on water ever again in the entire history of the church? No. 
Does Paul ever say, you can walk on water? No. Because they all learn the lesson. The church is not supposed to be a closed-off, moralistic, exclusionary group that's just happy to be saved even though everyone else is going to hell. And the church is also not supposed to be some self-help, do it however you want, have no morals, no ethics, no values, just walk on water however you want and think you're going to save people that way. Noah represents the older brother who just thinks following all the rules gets you saved. And Peter, in this story, represents the younger brother who thinks living however you want is liberation. It's liberal. It's free. And that also doesn't work. We're called to be a boat that we stay in but is open to the elements of what everybody's experiencing. It's open to the rise and fall of the waves. It's open to the beautiful sunshine. It's open to the hellish storms. We get sopping wet in the things that the culture is getting wet in, and we get dry in the things that the culture is getting dry in. The rain falls on the just and on the unjust. This is what the church is called to be, a place that has limits and boundaries and morals and ethics. Yes, there's a way that we're supposed to date that shows people the way that Jesus feels about us. There's a way that we're supposed to view sex and alcohol and all the other fun things that everybody so badly wants to hear me preach about. There is a right way to handle these things. We handle them in a way that shows that they're not our God. Yes, there's a sexuality that I think is from heaven and there's sexualities that I think are not. Yes, there are things that people are celebrating in the world that I think are more mental illness than freedom. All of that to say we can have long conversations about these things, but the church is called to live with Christ as its Lord in a boat, but that boat is supposed to be open and exposed to all the elements, and we're supposed to be feeling what they're feeling in such a way that trust is built for them to want to get into the boat with us. That's what we're called to. We're called to cast our nets, but we're also called to mend them to make sure that we're living worthy of our calling, to make sure that we are so, we are supposed to be, listen to me, Salem, we're supposed to be so ingrained in the culture that it's easy for us to slip into it. That's why we need to cast our nets, but that's also why we need to dock the boat sometimes and mend them too, because we should be so close to the non-Christ culture, that it's as easy for them to fall into the boat as it is for us to fall out of the boat. That's why we need to cast our nets, but that wears us down. We also need to mend our nets. Casting our nets is our external ministry to the world. Mending our nets is this, Salem, what we're doing right now. It's pastoral discipleship. It's you meeting with your deacons and elders. It's you not making life decisions by yourself. It's you reaching out and saying our marriage is going through something before there's hell to pay and it's irreparable. It's you leaning into the wisdom of people who have gone before you, even if it's not your cup of tea, but you listen to them because they do know more than you. It's those kinds of things. Mending our nets is us realizing that because even though we can't come to church, guess what? There's still a helping hands ministry out there at Salem where we make food for people who are sick. And guess what? There are a lot of people who are sick right now, and the helping hands ministry needs their nets mended a little bit. 
Pastor, are you turning this into a call for volunteering? A hundred percent yes. This sounds like a sales pitch. I hope it was a good one. This is what it means. This isn't me trying to trick you. This is what it means. This is the truth of it. Everybody on that platform, if you're watching, text them right now and say, I can cook a meal for somebody if they need it. And they'll jot your name down and we will call you tomorrow. (laughs) We used to have a visitation ministry. Well, we can't go visit people anymore, but we can write them letters. There are people laid up in, in the house that have been laid up in their house Husbands and wives in the same house, quarantined from each other. You name it, it's going on in, just in the Salem family, even more so outside of it. Maybe somebody could use a text or a phone call. A handwritten letter. An edible arrangement. A pizza. I'm not sick and I'm not asking for either of those things, just so you know. But we'll take it, my wife just said. (laughs) Somebody did send us brandy yesterday, whoever that was. (laughs) Praise the Lord. (laughs) There is a prayer chain that's very much like nets that's cast out. The The more link there is, the bigger that net is, and it can cover more area. Right now, let people know that you want a call tomorrow for any of these things. This is what it means to mend our nets. We can't live however we want. We can't sleep with whoever we want. We can't eat whatever we want. We can't say whatever we want. We can't post whatever we want. I know we preach the love of Christ, but there's also the love of Christ that says this. I love you as you are, but I love you too much for you to forever stay as you are. There is a standard that's called the boat, and it's a standard that has flexibility. It's a standard that understands case by case. If it's a bright, sunny day out, I want to know why there's two feet of water in the boat. But if there's a swamping storm, I'm not going to get mad at you that there's two feet of water in the boat. We need to be dynamic. We need to move with the circumstance. We need to understand things. We tell our daughter not to hit people. But when she went to the doctor and had to get about three needles when she had 105 fever, she smacked the doctor. And guess what we didn't say? We didn't say, you're wrong for hitting the doctor. We knew why she was. You see what I'm saying? There needs to be standards, but they shouldn't be cement. They should be flexibility. Daniel Arsted said this a long time ago. The tabernacle was enshrouded with animal skins. Animal skin was the boundary around the tabernacle. Why is that significant? Because when the wind blows, the animal skins move a little bit because there's some flexibility in the morals and ethics of God. Stiff trees fall down. Trees that know how to bend stay up forever. That's it. That's it. You can listen to that again and take notes. Let's get ready to come to the table now. Let's get ready to come to the table now. This, is Je- this table is Jesus mending our nets. Jacqueline, can you run into my office and grab the red book of common prayer? It's either on my desk 
or it's on the shelf. You have to wait. I'll tell you what, it's far less awkward with nobody in the room. It's probably weird for you all right now on the TV. But this is pretty, like, it's just like whatever. It feels like I'm just in a deacon meeting right now. I got a few people here. Frankie. Franco. John. I can't even say his name now without realizing you made fun of me that one time for how I said it. Ha, here it is. You should have walked in with, the, with it above your head like this. Hold on a second. One thing we don't do enough of when we come to the table of the Lord is confess our sins. But it is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 to do. Examine yourself before you come to the table, lest you eat and drink judgment on yourself. This is how we mend our nets. What does the first thing Jesus say in the text we read? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The first words of ministry out of Jesus' mouth is repent. Pastor, I don't like messages on repenting. Repent of that. Close your eyes. As I read one of the most beautiful prayers of repentance ever written, think about what you need to let go of. You're not in court. You've been set free from court, so now you're free to give the evidence over to God and get it off your chest. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. By what we've done and by what we've left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbor as ourself. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, not for my sake, not so that I feel better, but for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. And then here is the assurance that comes from that. Almighty God, have mercy on you. Forgive you all of your sins through our Lord Jesus Christ. Strengthen you in all goodness. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, keep you in eternal life. Amen. And now we can say, Open our lips, and our mouth shall proclaim your praise. Because it's through the lips of forgiven people that praise comes. Not through the lips of people who got it right. Through the lips of forgiven people. Like Jesus said, this woman loves me much because she's been forgiven much. And so if you're out there in this moment, and you're saying, 
I haven't been living right. Two things for you. One, you're not disqualified. And he's not going to waste the poor decisions you made. They will all be part of your powerful and anointed ministry. But he also says to you, I don't condemn you. However, go and sin no more. So if you're stuck in something today, reach out to a deacon. It's what members of a church do. We reach out to our leaders. And we say, help. Help me. Pray with me. I don't need somebody to yell at me. I don't need someone to tell me I told you so. I just need somebody to help me. Call the church office and make an appointment to meet with one of our elders or their wives. They're amazing people. The Holy Spirit flows through them on a regular basis. Make an appointment to meet with me and my wife. We want to listen. We want to help. I have people I call to help me out of the things I get stuck in. Because I'm not above reproach either. But don't stay in it and don't rationalize it and don't start to act like it's okay. Just talk to somebody. If you're not sure, talk to somebody. And on the flip side, if you've just done nothing but struggle with guilt, talk to somebody so they can assure you of God's love and forgiveness. Jacqueline said something so amazing in a meeting we recently had. And she said, it's not so much us trying to change what we do that should happen first. It's the fact that we need a different view of God that should happen first. God is not angry and he's not judgmental. He so desperately wants to take our sin and put his arms around it and hold it and help us with it. Until we have that view of him, we won't be able to let go of what we've done or what we're still doing or what we're stuck with or what we're addicted to or whatever it is. But I believe the Holy Spirit wants healing to come to this church. I believe the Holy Spirit is still concerned about our witness to the rest of the world. And if you know me, you know enough that these, th these things, I don't say these things first, but they do come. They do need to be talked about. They are part of what it means to be a pastor and be a congregation. We need to mend our nets. Certain things are so obvious. Every, no one debates that murder is wrong. <laughs> if you do, we should really talk. But sometimes we fail to realize that being rude is as murder, according to Jesus. And then there are other things that are very debated, whether or not they're right or wrong. And it's not for Sunday morning. It's for a private conversation. Meet with us. Talk with us. Let's not wait till COVID. Some of us won't make it until COVID is over. We might not die of COVID, but our spiritual life will. Don't let it happen. Fight for it. Fight for what you know. The teachings of the church, the Bible, and basic Christian reasoning tell us is right. 
And it's not about judgment and it's not about debate. It's first about understanding who your heavenly father is and the perfectly safe place he is. And then it's about sorting through the details. We have to repair the boat. We have to mend the nets so that we can be out there, not separated from the world, but right smack dab in the middle of it, but not sink into it and not close ourselves off from it. This takes finesse. This takes spiritual athleticism. This takes energy. It takes humility. It takes hearing what you don't want to hear. So Holy Spirit, I pray if there's anybody out there whose heart is just burning right now, if there's anybody out there who knows I'm stuck in a few things, there's a few vices in my life that without them, I don't know, I, don't, I can't picture how I would survive without these vices. It's not that I want to be doing them, it's that I just know if I, if I remove them, I don't know who I would be without them. I just pray, Father God, that it wouldn't be guilt. I pray that they would first feel your warm, compassionate love. And that we would be able to sit down and have a healthy, clarifying conversation about next steps and what we do from here. And so I just ask that if anybody out there needs that kind of love, that you either just say me in one of the chat boxes and they'll send you the church's email address, and you can email us or call us. They'll send you the church's number. If it's you, just write me, and, and all that you'll get in response is a phone number and an email address. And reach out. We're here Monday through Thursday, 9 to 4. Reach out. We'll get you in touch with people. We'll help you. We'll be here. That's what we do. If, you, if you're watching and you haven't walked with the Lord, just know right now he's never not walked with you. And if that's you, if that's you this morning, just type in, I want that relationship. Just type that phrase in, I want that relationship. And somebody will reach out to you, talk to you, pray with you, answer questions that you have, whatever. It's not embarrassing. <laughs> if I was in front of a computer, I'd probably type it right now myself. If you need healing, right, I need healing. And someone's going to reach out to you and pray with you. But let's not just watch TV. Let, we have to still be the church, Salem. We have to still be the church. We need to learn. We need to be discipled. We need to grow. We need to cast our nets. We need to mend them. We need to know that our calling is not in court. We need to know that it is challenging to change, but we can. And we need to know that ministry is also mending. Like these things are part of what we do. I'll let you do one thing. Ian, can you guys put the three points up on the screen real fast? Is that possible? You can take a, I, I told you not to take notes. Go ahead and take a screenshot of that, everybody. I'm not a monster. I'll let you do it. But here we are. Let's be real. I remember when I came here. Man, somebody called me out in front of everybody about how I have a calling on my life to be in the ministry. Called me right out. They didn't mind their own business. They got all up into mine and called me out in front of my entire family. And if that wasn't inconvenient enough, what happened for the next 
21 years was people locking into my life and not letting me get away with stuff. Literally hounding the hell out of me. Not leaving me alone. One of them is up in the balcony right now with a headset on. He would always text or call when I was about to do something stupid. Like, you ruined my Friday night, but thanks. He's annoying. Man, I got stories of conversations I've had at my brother Frank's house and his wife Jen saying, you're not going where you just told us you're going to go tonight. You're staying here. No, I think I'm going to go. My brother Frank, like, here's the thing, you're not. (laughs) So... So many, so many people. It's not embarrassing. It's how we become fishers of men. And none of it's wasted. Every bit of those bad years and every bit of those good ones, they're all part of the ministry that Jacqueline and I just pour from this pulpit. It's part of our story. It's all we do is we're just telling our story over and over and over again. So tell yours to God. Tell God what it's like to be you right now. Seriously, let's take 30 seconds here. Right now, wherever you are, tell God right now what it's like to be you. What is it? What do you feel like right now? He he wants to know. He doesn't want to hear fake prayers. He wants to know what is it like to be you right now? Are you angry? Do you feel guilty? Do you need to get something off your chest? Do you need to right a wrong way? Do you need to bail some water out of the boat? Have you been closed off and judgmental or have you been all liberated with no limits and boundaries at all and thinking that you're free but really you're enslaving yourself and others? What is it like to be you? Don't give them Christian answers. They're actually not Christian answers. Give them your answers. Those are Christian answers. In my head right now, Salem, I can see all of you at this altar right now. That's why my eyes have been closed half this message. I can see you at the altar right now. If this is getting too mystical for you, just the football games are starting soon. Turn, get ready for them. But I can see you here. I know what this moment would feel like if we were all together. And here's what I want you to know. It feels exactly the same to me right now. Because that's how awesome God is. Really let him talk to you. Really reach out to the church. If you don't have a deacon to reach out to because you're not a member of the church, call the church office. It's good to be a member of any local church because when you enter that particular boat... You just, you have access to more resources of love and redemption and discipleship. It's not that you don't if you're not a member, but you help the church allocate its resources properly. It's not a membership pitch. This is what God established long ago when he created this thing called the church. The local church. We're all little lifeboats out there just helping in our own way, in our own part of the sea.
It's waiting. Join us. On the night when he was betrayed, our Lord took bread. And he held it up and he gave thanks. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. It's going to start to look a lot like your boat. Broken, torn apart, splintered. But I'm, my boat's going to sink so that I can get into that water and rescue all of you out of it. As often as you eat this bread... Eat it knowing I'm inviting you into my boat. And then Jesus took a cup. Really interesting. He said, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. And when Jesus was pierced in his side, it was almost like that sealed off closed door in Noah's ark opened. And Jesus said, come on in. I'll save you from the storm. My name is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are saved. Isn't that funny that the righteous run into it? The righteous out there messing up? We're only righteous, not because we got it right, but because we ran into the one who did. As often as you drink this, drink it knowing you're invited into my boat. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray that you descend on these gifts and make them for your people the body and blood of Jesus, the food and the drink of new and unending life in him. And sanctify us also that we may worthily eat this meal and serve you in unity, constancy, and peace, and at the last day rejoice to be brought together with you and all the world out of the waves, out of the depths, out of the place of the weeping and gnashing of teeth into the city whose gates will never be shut and whose doors will never be locked. As one of my favorite theologians said, don't let the Breton cup know that it can be filled with the presence of God more than you. You're filled right now with the presence of God too, Salem. To be brought into the boat and to bring others into the boat. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. This is the body of Christ, the bread of heaven. This is the blood of Christ, the cup of salvation. Would you partake with me this morning? It is part of every priest's duty to eat all the bread that is in the cup after the people have eaten because it's the reminder that there are people who should, who should have been at this table who weren't. So when Jesus fed the 5,000 or the 15,000 or the 10,000, there were baskets and baskets left over. 
And we hear those stories and say, ah, there was baskets left over. Steph, we hear these stories and we say, oh, there's baskets left over because God wants to bless me and then bless me with more and more and more. But you know why there were baskets left over? Because Jesus made enough for everybody he wanted to eat and not everybody he wanted to eat was there. So there's still some food left on some plates. And Jesus said, gather it. Because one day everybody that I've ever wanted to eat is going to eat with me. So he tells his disciples, gather up all the fragments because one day it'll all be eaten. So that's why it's a priest eats the rest of the host and drinks the rest of the cup as a reminder that we still have work to do. It's also why we don't use real wine because there's nobody here. So that would have been a lot. Fine. Well, we want to thank you again for joining us this Sunday. Uh, We trust that you felt God's presence in your homes as you were worshiping with us. And we just want to remind you about our book study on Wednesday at 730. You have three days to pick up the book and read chapter one. And also, please don't forget that you have to sign up for it so that you can get the link. So the sign up is on our website. Don't forget to do that so you can join us on Wednesday night. 7.30. Uh, It's a great tool for helping you mend those nets and make them stronger. And so uh, we hope that you'll join us. And we just love you so much. Grace and peace. Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle podcast. For more information about us, including gathering times and our location, Check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.